Moses, and the Phillies have the National League Championship. They have beaten the Padres 4-3, and they celebrate on their home turf as the Phillies are the 2022 NL From WHYY and Billy Penn, this is your Friday edition of Hitting Season, a Philadelphia Phillies podcast. My name is Justin Clue. My two co-hosts will not be joining us. John Stolness has been recruited by a shadow organization of 80s baseball nerds, and Liz Rocher has been carried off by a large bird. We wish her well in her future endeavors. But for now, we have a couple of guests we're going to talk to today. We're going to talk a little bit about Bryson Stott. We're going to talk a little bit about the Miami Marlins. Uh, But first, we got to talk about this series with the Tampa Bay Rays. Ladies and gentlemen, your Philadelphia Phillies have swept the best team in the American League in their own stadium. I wouldn't call this the expected outcome from this series. Uh, I certainly didn't think they would go into Tampa and take all three games. I thought it was on the table that they could get swept, that they might lose the series, or that they could even win two out of three. This is a team that went into L.A. and beat a tough team. They went into Arizona and beat a tough team. They went into Houston and beat a tough team, winning series in all three of those cities. They also lost a series to the Nationals at home very recently, a team they really should have beaten. And, you know, they they have also been defined by games that were winnable, but they let slip through their fingers. Uh, This team has struggled getting their offense aligned and fully calibrated and weaponized. Uh, They initially were struggling with their starting pitching, but that has really become a strength of this Phillies team. Their bullpen has uh, flibbed and flubbed a bit, but also emerged as a strength for this team. And you saw almost all of that on display in this series. The offense wasn't exactly explosive, but they did provide enough to win all three games. And the pitching really did their job as well. And, you know, we already talked about games one and two earlier this week. We already talked about Aaron Nola's great performance. We talked about the big win in game two. Uh, Game three, yeah, I I really thought, all right, it's great. They won the series. Maybe a sweep isn't necessarily in the cards. This, again, is the best team in the American League. But the Rays have been struggling of late. And the Phillies really capitalized on that and became the first team to sweep the Tampa Bay Rays in 2023. If you had told me the Phillies would be the team to do that, or at least tried to get me to guess the team that would be the first team to sweep the Rays after their hot start in 2023, I don't think I would have guessed the Phillies necessarily. So this was uh, this was a encouraging development, I would say. Uh, And there were there are contributors across the board here. I mean, starting with Chris Sanchez, another six inning start, another one run start. I mean, this is what made the National Series so frustrating is that. They got a great start from the fifth spot, something that's been a struggle for this team all season long. They put Christopher Sanchez back out there. He goes six innings, four hits, one earned run, two strikeouts. Uh, The run coming off an Isaac Paredes fifth inning home run that tied the game at 1-1. But his ERA is down at 284, and he is really showing that that fifth spot in the rotation might not be something you got to worry about, at least for the time being. The pitching staff remains, I will say, fluid. You never really know. You, you, you know, it's tough to be a hundred percent, but it does feel like that fifth spot has been more fortified with Christopher Sanchez in it lately. Uh, that's, that's, I got to tell you, that's an exciting development. You, you don't expect to say that about the fifth spot in a rotation, but it's an exciting development that the Phillies may have found a guy 
who can uh, really get the job done at the back of the rotation. Uh, and, and against a team like the, the Rays, you know, he throws like that against the Nationals and you say, wow, that was great. Uh, he looked great. Let's not discount the fact that he's pitching against one of the worst teams in the National League. But then he comes out and plays the best team in the American League and gets the same result. I mean, that's very encouraging. I think everyone should feel pretty good about Christopher Sanchez and the Phillies rotation at the moment. Even Aaron Nola pitched like an utter champion in his last start. So this is a tough slate. This six-game stretch through Florida that the Phillies are, are playing out to finish out the first half is not easy. It, this is not a this this is this is a quite a, quite a gauntlet to finish out the first half. I would say they're t- they're taking on the Rays, who have been dominating the American League since opening day, and the Marlins, who have just been an X factor in the National League playoff picture uh, from day one as well. People have been waiting for the Marlins to fall back to earth for some time, and there they are, double digits over five hundred. Every victory the Phillies have achieved, it feels like not only the Marlins, but the Braves have been in lockstep with them. And it's made it hard for the Phillies to gain a lot of ground, but the Phillies finally pushed through. They are sitting in a wild card spot currently. If the season ended today, they would be in the playoffs. So would the Marlins. So this will be a contentious series, potentially. This is this is a big one. I think both teams feel like they have something to prove going into the first half. And, you know, at the end of the first half, People tend to start defining teams. They start using the sample size of the last few months to say, okay, look, this is the kind of team this is. And I think the Phillies are really using their remaining games left in the season's first half before the All-Star break to show, hey, this is the kind of team we are. And Christopher Sanchez getting locked in as the fifth starter and doing the kind of work he's been doing in his last few starts really, really strengthens that definition. Uh, But beyond him, you got to talk about Alec Bohm. You know, I, I watched a lot of recaps and highlight reels this morning just about this game and about these this series, and I was kind of surprised. Uh, Alec Bohm's diving catch in the second inning of yesterday's series finale made it into all of them. It's a great play. He dives to his left, uh, holds up the ball backhanded to show the ump he caught it. It's a great play. It's a big out. But I was really surprised that his barehanded grab uh, and throwing out of a runner uh, later in the game didn't make any of the highlight reels. You got to seek that individual clip out yourself. That's so much more of an impressive play to me. And I, I, I my jaw dropped. It was one of those plays when I saw it happen in real time. I got to tell you, it's really funny to think about the the contrast and the passage of time. Last year, we were sitting here watching Alec Bohm make three errors in one game in his famous I hate this place game. And now, you know, yesterday he's making a barehanded grab on a tough bouncing ball and throwing the runner out at first in a play that got him instant comparisons to Mike Schmidt. So we're going from a three error game and a little soap opera, soap opera drama that followed it to Mike Schmidt comparisons in the span of one year. I mean, that's that really shows you a guy getting comfortable at his position. And he's also been playing first. He's had to fill in as a, you know, emergency first baseman for the Phillies this year too. They've been asking him to do a lot, and Alec Bohm has been this team's leader uh, uh, in um, hitting with runners in scoring position. He's he's really showing off the leather at third base. Honestly, I mean, yeah, he hits further down in the lineup, so he's going to get more opportunities with runners on base. But still, he's been he's found ways to contribute this year quietly that have been very valuable to this team. And it's really exciting to see him making plays like that, because that was something else. Uh, Other than that, you had Derek Hall hitting his first major league home run this year, gave the Phillies an early one to nothing lead. 
uh, by crushing a ball to right center off Jake Diekman. He ended Diekman's 13 and two-thirds inning scoreless streak. Uh, so that was nice. Put a little put a little end to a former Phillies dominance. The game had a 1-1 tie into the 11th inning. Garrett Stubbs got dinged on the wrist uh, as the game entered extras. Uh, so that put two runners on base with the automatic runner already on second. Uh, Stubbs stayed in the game and Schwarber, Kyle Schwarber, came up and knocked an RBI single to right field. Brought in a run, gave the Phillies a 2-1 lead. Trey Turner followed him. He bopped a single into right field for an insurance run. Just as Tom McCarthy was pretty much saying, boy, I hope he does that. And then he did it. Uh, and then you, had, you got Matt Strom. You got Matt Strom coming in after Craig Kimbrell in this one as the game went into extras. He pitched two innings of uh, of relief for the Phillies and didn't allow a hit, didn't allow a run, allowed only one walk, and struck out three. I said at the beginning of the year, once we started seeing a little more of Matt Strom, I really like his intensity. Uh, I, I really like how he is on the mound. And I said one of my wishes this year is to see him pitch in a big, pivotal game and celebrate getting the outs he needed, you know, doing his job and being excited in a big moment. And I think this was, this was it. Like I hope, obviously I hope there's more moments and bigger moments to come, but this was a big moment for him. I think this team really wanted to finish out the sweep and they had an opportunity to do so in extra innings. Matt Strom, man, he's out there. He gets the first out. He allows a runner on a walk and then gets the double play. He needs from Wander Franco of all people, who is going to be a future star in Major League Baseball, and he gets him to ground into a double play to end the game. I mean, woof, boy, that was something else. Uh, the Phillies won. It was their 12th straight road win. They are tied for the second longest road win streak in franchise history. And as I said, they were the first team to sweep the Rays in 2023. I mean, it was a great win. It was a great series, and it gives them some uh, some solid momentum going into this series with the Marlins, which is surprisingly, uh, surprisingly crucial. I think, like I said, I think both teams are, are really going to want to win this series and uh, maintain their status as a playoff contender in the National League, um, perhaps an unexpected playoff contender in the National League. Uh, I, I got to tell you, this is uh, this is going to be probably one of the meatiest Marlins-Phillies series you've ever seen. I don't know how many times the Phillies and Marlins have both been in uh, playoff contention by the end of the first half. That uh, that are playing in a series that matters to both of them, that has longer you know implications throughout the rest of the season, and I, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna see some good baseball here. I think this is gonna be an intense series. So uh, this is uh, this is really gonna be this is gonna be an ent- interesting end to the first half. And uh, if the Phillies and if the Phillies series against the Rays and the sweep of the Rays at Tropicana Field is any indication. They've turned a corner, and they look like they're going to be a legitimate threat in the National League. Of course, we've thought that before, and then they've come out and, you know, not hit, fallen down, face-planted immediately right coming out the door. So, you know, is what it is. But for now, the Phillies were the first team to sweep the Rays in 2023, and I think that's something you really got to tip your cap to. Well, obviously, Nick Castellanos has dominated the conversation as far as Phillies hitters go, as he has gone from a disappointing free agent signing in 2022 to the Phillies' only all-star in 2023. But he's not the only one putting the bat on the ball in the Phillies' lineup these days, as the team has won 22 of its last 29 games. Bryson Stott is a young hitter who is really starting to come into his own for the Phillies, slapping singles and doubles and generally irritating opposing pitchers with his speed. 
The 25-year-old moved over to second base this year after the Phillies said farewell to Gene Segura and signed Trey Turner to play short, and Stott has adapted well. Earlier this year, he put together a 17-game hit streak, passing Puddinhead Jones to get the longest hitting streak to begin a season by a Phillies player in the modern era. And more recently, against the Rays, he had six hits in the first two games of that series, including a 4-for-5 performance in Game 2. All told, he had two doubles, knocked in a pair of runs, scored three times against Tampa, adding aforementioned speed on the base paths and stepping up with some deep, patient veteran at-bats for such a young player. I'm joined now by Tim Jackson, a writer for Baseball Prospectus, who recently penned an article entitled Bryson Stott is Getting Better by Being the Same Player, which you can read at BaseballProspectus.com. Tim, thanks for joining us here on Hitting Season. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, it's always a good time to read about Bryson Stott. It's always a good time to read about a position player for the Phillies who they drafted and brought through their farm system who is in the news for good reasons. Like, this is this is, oh, this is not a roundup of failed prospects. This is like, no, this is a young player on the Phillies who they didn't sign for a bunch of money. He's just a guy who they developed, and he's doing well. I mean, this this is this alone is sort of a departure for the Phillies. It is, and I was going to say, as, as you started speaking to that, rare as it may be, that they drafted him and, and seemingly have developed him into something. It's it's a nice change of pace. <laughs> and the Utley comparisons are incorrect, but inevitable, I feel. So you gotta, you gotta, you got to just watch out for that every time there's a middle infielder on the Phillies who's young uh, and uh, people want to get excited about Chase Utley again. Now... In your article, you describe Bryson Stott as a pest in the box, which I think is perfect. Could you expand on that label and, and, and what you mean by it? Well, when I think of a pest, I just think of anybody who you would rather not deal with but constantly have to deal with. And watching Stott, that's that's just the word that really jumps to mind in terms of his actual performance. It's just that... You can get him to two strikes, but he's so, so hard to put away when he has two strikes on him. So it's almost like you're... <laughs> imagine uh, imagine any of his at-bats are the Royal Rumble, and you are pushing him out of the, <laughs> out of the ring. Done. <laughs> and, yeah, and he's got, like, I don't know, everything but his lower leg out. And then he still climbs back in and makes you at least expend energy for another few minutes, like absolute pain in the butt i think once he gets the two strikes and and it's really centered on his aggression yeah a striking out after a 10 pitch at bat goes very much overlooked i would say as far as skill wise goes but the fact that he can just even just milk two or three more pitches out of a starter and get him you know that much closer to gassed is it's a valuable skill and to your point he also i believe leads the league in two strike hits so he's he's an, he's effective and unrattled, which I think is is pretty rare for uh, for young hitters in his position. Um, does Stott's approach set him apart from the rest of the Phillies lineup? Do you feel? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. If the laugh doesn't give it away, I think so. Um, and not only because he doesn't swing often before he has two strikes, but because he swings way more than average when he does have those two strikes. Like, even if you look at Bryce Harper, like, notably aggressive Bryce Harper, he swings a league average amount when there are two strikes. Um, Kyle Schwarber is is going up there gunning for it no matter what. Uh, his, his plan is is to hit bombs, right? Like, 
Stott just seems like a different type of hitter. And, and it, sometimes in lineups throughout the league, you see managers look for almost like that second leadoff hitter. So while the, there have been issues up at the top for the Phillies at times and people are reticent or reluctant to accept Schwarber up there, Stott down anywhere else I think does make sense as almost like a lineup reset because he is a different hitter and you do have to approach him differently. You have to be ready to throw him multiple pitches to multiple parts of the plate and be ready for him to kind of knock you around even if he doesn't get on base. Would you be prepared to put him near the top of the order or at the top of the order and then deal with the vitriol about lineups construction that typically follows any kind of change? Uh, yeah, because I've spent three decades tuning out WIP callers. <laughs> uh, to, I guess to be less uh, cheeky about it, yeah, I think so. I think... One thing in, in all the rage about the, the lineups this, this summer is that it's really easy to lose touch of uh, Thompson coming in and having pushed all the right buttons. Like He's not suddenly pushing all the wrong buttons, and maybe we're veering a little off of Stott, uh, but I, I do feel it's relevant that um, we're, we're not really built for patience when it comes to a baseball season because we want the instant reaction, right? But uh, yeah, I would be ready for it because why not? Like He's good at it. If if you can have a guy start the game seeing 10 pitches before the absolute meat of your lineup comes up that is really, really dangerous, even if they haven't been performing steadily, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of talking me into it just sitting here as we're discussing this. I'm <laughs> well, like, yeah, I was going to say, are, are you not willing to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I don't think about lineup construction as much as, uh, as the people who you know, see it revealed three hours before game time and, and throw a fit every day. I think there's certainly mistakes that are made or things I disagree with once I see one. But in general, I mean, I don't know. I know there are optimal ways to arrange these players, but I'm also looking at them being 22 and seven in their last 29 games. So I, at this point for me, I'm just like, hey, whatever's just stack up wins. They win yeah, tonight. Right. I don't, I don't care what the lineup was. Right. Right now I would not do it, but I'm saying if, if you felt like if, if a shakeup needed to happen, like, yeah, sure, take a look. Because I don't think – I think we're actually on the same page in that it's not terribly relevant once the game gets going. Right. Like, Kyle Schwarber will swing at the first pitch and maybe hit a home run. But Bryson Stott will stand up there for, like, 12, 15 pitches, get a guy nice and rattled, and then maybe work a walk or lace a double right. into the corner. I mean, these are different approaches, and each have each have value, and maybe that value varies as the season goes on. But, yeah, I, I, I would be prepared to do that as well, I think, yeah. Uh, so what do you think makes a guy comfortable in deep counts? I mean, I obviously have no major league experience to speak of, or minor league, or college and barely any high school experience as well. But <laughs> my point being that I was easily unnerved in the box. And if I had two strikes on me, good Lord, the sweat on my hands was notable. So what do you feel like makes a guy comfortable when he's in the box and he's deep in the count and he's got two strikes and yet he's still able to find a way to get the hit you want him to get? Like, how does, how does, what, what is it control? Is it just repetition? So I, it's a really fun question, and I, I started to think in terms of how to respond in about three different ways. So uh, one of them is very much in my wheelhouse, which might might not be in many listeners, but it does speak to a certain amount of presence. 
that a, a hitter really needs to do that, right? Because not many guys have that uh, approach or skill, even if they have that willingness. So I think there is a certain amount of presence that, like, um, once you have two strikes, it's like, oh, wait, no, now it really counts. Now I really need to focus and, and at least get something out of this. I need to get at least a few more pitches. Um, if not, again, that, that base hit or some sort of double or some sort of accidental home run. But beyond that, I, I guess it... <laughs> I think I'm just going to stick with presence. I, I think that's one of those things, and that's what makes Stott so fun to me. Uh, he is aesthetically pleasing to watch play. And beyond that, like, he he's ready for it, I guess. Um Wow, I'm really I'm really having a hard time answering that. That's not satisfying, is it? <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think you're you're right that he's he's really seems like he's coming into his own and ready to step into the big time, but I think the kind of player he is may not may not make like he since he's not a Kyle Schwarber, since he's not a big home run hitter, he may not get the focus or or, or the uh, or the attention that a guy like that like a guy like Schwarber, one of some of these big sluggers the Phillies have in their lineups might might get because his job is to be I, honestly how I envision Alec Bohm to a point as well where they're just their job is to hit line drives, their job is to get on base, their job is to drive runners in and just be these quiet productive engines engines uh, deeper in the Phillies lineup. And uh, he can be, he is, he is very good at that already, assuming he can get even better. I mean, you know, he's put that batting average right at a nice tidy 300 uh, uh, after this Rays series. So uh, assuming he can get better, I mean, what's Stott's next punch, do you feel? What aspect of his hit tool would you like to see him develop, if anything? Well, I'm almost curious to see, and this is, this is kind of like the lineups, right? The team has been so good lately, you're not going to goof with it, and you're certainly not going to goof with it midseason when he's been so successful. But I think so much of his game is a mentality, and I do call him a pest, and I do think of like that sibling who uh, is just, again, will not let you forget them. Uh, like, yeah, you've got to prepare for Schwarber and Harper and, and so on down the line and Castellanos. But you can't forget Bryson Stott, and he does that in a really unique and annoying way. So I think his next punch could be a willingness to swing earlier in the count before he's got two strikes. Uh, and yes, that might shift the dynamic in terms of how valuable it is that he can work so many pitches out of a pitcher at times. But with the way he makes contact later and the way he can clearly move the barrel around the zone to get that contact, I think it would be really interesting to see, well, one, how would he do swinging earlier? And two, even beyond that, like if that uh, kind of works itself out or, or runs itself out or low, where does he really get the barrel on the bat best, which maybe puts him in a, in a position similar to other hitters where they look for their nitro zone. His nitro zone just seems to be anywhere he wants to get the bat on the ball. So uh, like, why not swing more? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that'd be an interesting shift. I think for his dynamic tip to be able to do both, I think would make him a much more chaotic hitter to have to pitch to. Um, but I, to go back to the previous question, as far as like how a guy can get comfortable like that, uh, I'm, I'm of the mind that, and you know, it's not like this is an original thought by me, but I'm of the mind that if you have a player on your team, of, of any age at any point in their career, but who you feel is like capable of breaking out, who, who you feel like would benefit your team 
by getting to play. Playing them seems like the next logical step. <laughs> do, you, do you think that the Phillies learned their lesson about leaving young players on the shelf in favor of a manager's favorite old toys, given that, and you mentioned this in the article, Stott seemed to suffer playing time-wise when Joe Girardi was around, and now that he is playing every day, he has been able to blossom into the kind of hitter we're talking about. So do you feel like the Phillies in general learned that lesson uh, with by casting Girardi out? I think whether or not they learned that lesson is probably too big of a question to answer, but I do think they realized the change they needed to make, which is really kind of indicative of these Phillies, right? Like, oh, we need to do something different. I think that's kind of a, a larger overarching theme that they have um, really taken to or embodied over the last couple of years, uh, seeing them go from uh, eight different phases of a rebuild that wasn't working into, oh, we want to be good again. Um, and I think they take that question seriously, like how do we get good again or how do we get better? I think they take it more seriously now, and I think they will uh, pivot in directions in which we'll be beneficial to end up going um it, specific to Stott, i don't know i don't know if he taught them something i hope so but i think he also does a lot of things that aren't necessarily captured in a lot of metrics like you're not going to see pitch counts per at bat tallied up in war anytime soon but i think it's really relevant for him as a player and to trust like to believe in your guys yeah that's really like these soft skills or mentalities that you have to take up. Yeah, I think that's certainly relevant, and I hope that they've taught themselves that or that they've learned that through Stott. How many years are we from Bryson Stott's first appearance as an All-Star? <laughs> um, <laughs> Go ahead. Get it exactly right. <laughs> uh, well, now that we're already at the halfway point, I'll do math. Um, second base is kind of a pit, too, isn't it? Yeah, League-wide. yeah. Um, what if he's like two to two and a half years away from a legitimate all-star push? Okay. Where he's this pest that is persistent and consistent and people like, like pitchers on the mound have to, uh, they, they have to avoid overlooking him. Maybe he'll make fans uh, avoid overlooking him too. One of these years soon. 2025 all-star game. I'll tell you what, let's push it to 2026. Philly's Philly gets the all-star game. It's the what? 250th anniversary of America. And Bryson Stott <laughs> is leading off for the national league all-star team. I like it. I like this painting you, you've provided us with uh, Tim. Well, I didn't say 2026. Cause I just assume that'll be the second straight all-star. <laughs> <laughs> Lock it in and hold him accountable. If he's wrong, folks, uh, last question, not Bryson Stott related, but I'm just kind of asking everybody right now. Phillies at the trade deadline. What's the move? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's a trap. Yeah, you, you mentioned chaos or chaotic hitter a few minutes ago with Stott. It's my, it's my interview style as well. <laughs> Typically, I'm blasting <laughs> horns and flashing lights, but we're not doing this in person. Um, well, next time. Um Boy, what do they do? I, I guess you have to go for some sort of arm, right? The bullpen seems uh, maybe like what people would be wanting to say, but it's been pretty good, and they have options still within the organization. Um, I don't know where you would add a hitter. 
so like yeah why not a starting pitcher and whether or not they actually feel the confidence or, or the willingness to go for a difference maker that's the question uh i think how much do you believe in christopher sanchez that's going to be a really big question if you think he can keep kind of doing what he's doing you're going to need an upgrade over him and that's probably going to cost a lot so do you want to do that philosophically i i don't know i don't know if i would want to do it but um <laughs> maybe a pitcher maybe a starting pitcher i guess is my short answer i think the phillies want to believe in christopher sanchez i think they're probably pretty excited about his last couple starts uh but try this on for size i'm very suggestible uh weak-minded some have said and um i think i got talked into cody bellinger <laughs> um I mean, I guess, but if they still want to platoon Marsh, like, what if Bellinger goes into it like a, a slump the way he's had the last few years? <laughs> what do you mean, what if? As soon as he gets here, that's exactly what would happen. <laughs> well, is it a slump if he starts that way? <laughs> Good point. That's no, just a bad acquisition. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I've got a lot of um, pent up like anxiety about the team underperforming in any move they make. <laughs> Uh, so I I don't know. Again, I would want a pitcher. Bellinger would be fun. I just don't know how the city would react. I think that's my that's my uh, priority in these trade talks. Is like who would be fun? What would be funny? <laughs> what would, what would make people upset? You know, yeah, that kind of stuff. That's what the trade deadline's all about: getting upset. Well, Tim, thank you for joining us here on Hitting Season. I really appreciate it. Uh, you can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Jackson Says, and you can read his work at Baseball Prospectus. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Take care. And I'm here with Eli Sussman now, the uh, founder of Fish On First and social media manager for Pitcher List. Uh, and a Marlins expert we've brought in to help break down this upcoming series between the Phillies and Marlins in Miami. Uh, Eli, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, pleasure to be on. This has been a, a pretty special season over here, at least by Marlins standards. And uh, yeah, this is about the peak of it. And uh, yeah, great test coming up this weekend for both teams. Yeah, I wish the Phillies could have just ended the first half with a nice, tidy sweep of the Rays. That was very encouraging, uh, made everybody feel a little more optimistic, which is tough to do in Philadelphia. But now, of course, they got to go play the Marlins. And if anything, if this goes anything other than perfectly, then you're going to have a lot of a lot of complaints to deal with over the All-Star break in Phillies circles. And the Marlins are a team that, honestly, you can you, they're going to make you complain about things. Feels like everybody but the Braves, they've been able to handle pretty well. And they've kept themselves in the playoff picture. They've kept themselves uh, above the Phillies in the NL East. And, uh, yeah, they're just a team that uh, I'm not really looking forward to having to play against. Um, now, you just got off a call with Kim Ng talking about the state of the Marlins. I wanted to ask, uh, before we even get started on the Phillies-Marlins series... How does Kim Ng's state of the Marlins align with what you personally view as the state of the Marlins at this point as they enter this new territory as a playoff contender? Yeah, it seems well relatively well aligned where this season, in terms of a full-length season, they have not been this good this deep into the year in 20 years, since 2003. They had the COVID year, uh, as you remember, where really the only difference why the Marlins made the playoffs is because they beat up on the Phillies pretty well that year. But all things considered, this has been above anybody's reasonable expectations um winning at the clip that they are even when things aren't going all that perfectly for the team how you know how mediocre sandy alcantara has been uh jazz being in and out of the lineup 
there are things that have not gone according to plan, and yet they are winning at um, what, the third best record in the National League, somewhere around there, maybe even the second at the moment. Um, so things are going really well, but they also realize that it's um, they are going to make quite a bit of a push this year. They're going to, by all indications, be buyers at the trade deadline um, and try to take advantage of this. But they also realize that it's they're not all in for this season, that they have quite a few younger players um, with Yuri Perez being right in the middle of that. And uh, as this season plays out, I think she's just made it clear that they still need to look out for the long-term well-being of some of their younger players in here before, um, yeah, rather than putting all their chips in the middle here, they don't want to be reckless and um, they want to preserve the young arms that they have for as long as they have long-term, understanding that some of them have already dealt with injuries this year. So they're in a tricky spot uh, in terms of their rotation depth at the major league level and still with their lineup, even though at times, uh, very recently against the Cardinals, they went off for 30 runs in a three-game span at one point. It's been um, hit or miss because the previous game coming into the series, they just got shut out by that same mediocre Cardinals team. It's It, it has a, uh, I think she's very proud of the identity of the team. Offensively, a bunch of contact hitters that have, for the most part, done very well in this new world without infield shifting. That gamble has paid off. The improvements they made to their bullpen have paid off as well. You just look up and down the roster, and aside from their all-stars, Jorge Soler and Luisa Rise, they're just a lot, like a lot of areas where they could use some improvements, could use some upgrades. You just don't know how many of these guys you can really count on for uh, the rest of the season. Um, so I think she is kind of she's really straddling that line a little bit where they want to get better, but they also. Uh, they don't even have a whole lot of trade assets to use at this particular deadline in order to make those improvements. Um, so as comfortable as a position as they're in right now, uh, I would suspect that this is kind of going to go down to the wire in terms of whether or not they actually hold on to playoff position the rest of the way. That's an interesting point because the uh, I've, I've been talking to Phillies writers who believe that despite everything we've seen from Miami so far this season, there is still a fall to be had. There's still a return to earth to be had by this Marlins team, but we're sitting here coming up on the end of the first half and they're, you know, double digits over 500, something the Phillies have never been this season, uh, constantly crawling out of a hole. So do you think there's any legitimacy to that idea? Do you feel like this team does have something of a reckoning coming for it? Or is this the kind of play we should expect from the Marlins moving forward? The one tangible improvement that needs to be pointed out is the not just the manager position, but the whole coaching staff as a whole with Skip Schumacher replacing Don Mattingly. We just, on Fish on First, we just put out an interview with Joey Wendell talking about differences between last year's team and this year's team. He just echoed what basically every single player is saying, kind of going out of their way to talk about how they feel that this coaching staff is as good as they've been around in terms of the way that they prepare, uh, the way that they translate information for the players, allowing them to actually make that information actionable and make the adjustments they need to to perform up to their level of play. And as people have, um, I think it's already been closely uh, well amplified how well that this team is performing in close games specifically one run games 21 wins in one run huh. games after that exact issue was kind of their biggest issue in bugaboo in 2022 they've completely flipped it around and obviously winning one run games at that rate is going to be unsustainable 
the idea that they could potentially win them at a higher rate than almost any other team, I, I think maybe there is some credence to that because of the way that they've assembled this roster, the way that they use, in my opinion, the right players in high leverage situations, and that generally makes a difference. So they've had some good luck along the way to get there. Um, yeah, ultimately, there are just still a lot of holes here that unless they have a really great bill of health in the second half. I don't know how they're going to patch all these holes at the same time. Uh, former Philly Gene Segura at third base, he's been so bad <laughs> this entire year. They're counting on a lot more from him. Their catcher position, um, really both sides of it, you just don't get anything offensively. They don't control the running game defensively. And then now in center field, um, they have a big hole right now that they're plugging with a really fringe prospect who's had a great year, Dane Myers. He's temporarily their main center fielder, even though he's barely ever played center field, even though he was a minor league Rule 5 draft pick, not even a major league, a minor league Rule 5 guy just a few months ago. Um, they have like, yeah, they have these holes where I think there is still a ceiling on this team in terms of how many runs they're going to score. And uh, yeah, I, I just don't see them like, having quite enough assets to plug everything at the same time, I would expect the winning percentage to come down a little bit. The fortunate part has been, you know, just some of these big name, um, these other teams in the National League that had such high expectations, most obviously the Cardinals and the Mets and the Padres, teams that it was difficult to see the Marlins finishing ahead of any of them. And then at this particular moment, you feel like there's a good chance they finish ahead of all of them, or at least two of them, to move up the wildcard pecking order just because of those that malaise, that kind of inexplicable struggles that those teams have gone through. That's been such a big part of um, the state of the Marlins right now is the fact that it seems that these other key contenders in the National League have failed to contend at the way that they're capable of doing. Yeah, I feel like national writers, analysts, fans, they kind of latch onto these teams before the season starts and then whether they succeed or not, and in this case, the teams you're talking about, Mets, Cardinals, Padres, largely have not. Not in the way that, that they thought they were going to. And so instead of shifting to the teams that are succeeding, the attention remains on those teams as they like have their downfall. Which, you know, I get it. Don't get me wrong. I'm as eager to read about the Mets losing as I am about the Phillies winning. Uh, but at the same time... Uh, I feel like there's some attention to be paid to the fact that the Marlins have been doing what they've been doing, that the Phillies are 22 and seven in their last 29 games. Like that's, that's also pretty notable. I would say uh, here are these two NLEs teams that are really climbing out of a hole here and, and uh, really making it, making it clear that they deserve some attention uh, and at least some contention as well. Uh, and one of the things that I was cracking up about the other day was remembering how the Marlins acquired Luis Arise and it was, I mean, at least from my perspective, it didn't get a ton of fanfare. A lot of people were learning for the first time that he was the American League batting champion when the Marlins brought him in, and everyone was like, oh yeah, the Marlins need to add some offense. And they were like, well, how about the best hitter in the American League? And everyone was like, eh. And now here he is, Ted Williamsing his way through the season, and you're like, yeah, because that's who he is. How fun has it been to watch this guy hit the ball? Right, and I will be the first one to remind people that I was not a huge fan of that particular trade, more so because they added multiple prospects on top of Pablo Lopez in order to acquire him. I just thought the acquisition cost was extremely steep, but it has been just an immense success um, in any way you 
chop it up, not just because he's the player that they thought he was, but because he's simply better than they thought he was. He, if he was hitting 315 or 320, um, that, that trade is a lot different than what he's doing now, where he's flirting with 400. He's doing it while getting drawing his fair share of walks as well and doing it in high leverage situations and playing better even at second base than I thought he would as well, being more durable than I think it was reasonable to expect. This is a play that also had injury concerns about how he would hold up, and yet he's been one of their most durable players at this point in the season to put himself in as a no-doubt all-star, to put himself in you know the fringe of down-ballot MVP conversations, being even better than he was and, and has made such a big difference for this team. So yet there's simply not much you can say about it beyond that. He's that has been another key difference between what was reasonably expected from this team and how they're playing. I think they've wanted one or two or three additional games just because he has gone up a level from his career norms of being a great offensive player to being one of the most valuable offensive players in all of baseball. Uh, I think when you look at the Phillies and Marlins, you can, in a broad sense, see a couple parallels. I mean, I mentioned the fact that neither they're both NL East teams, neither of whom are getting probably the attention they deserve for how well they've been playing recently, but also just on a player level. I mean, part of their success has come because of guys like Jorge Soler, uh, really hitting the ball, uh, I think, better than he was expected to when the season started. I think he got a, an analog in Nick Castellanos on the Phillies, who had a terrible 2022 and came out and is now their all-star. Uh, I think right. you look at the pitching staff and see Aaron Nola, who is never quite as good as the crowd wants him to be. Uh, he certainly has flashed frontline stuff again this season, but he's also run into his problem innings with Sandy Alcantara, the defending NL Cy Young winner, who, as you said, has been uh, startlingly mediocre at times this season. Uh, Luis Arise has no counterpart the way he's playing, but if you, you know, the closest thing the Phillies probably have to that is a guy like Bryson Stott, who has strung together a couple of really impressive uh, hitting streaks uh, this year. Uh, and has it's become a name more and more national writers are starting to mention as a, as a, one of the good young hitters in baseball. How do the, in your mind, how do the Phillies and Marlins match up as we begin this series? Well, frankly, as good as things have gone for the Marlins overall, um, I, I think the best thing about this particular series, the way that the Marlins pitching lines up is pretty favorable. Um, Jesus Lazardo, who's starting, I think, the finale of this one, He's very quietly had a scoreless ending streak of about 21 consecutive Good innings. Um, he was a player that I think a lot of people were high on entering this year if he simply stayed healthy. And after being inconsistent for the better part of two and a half months, he's been un untouchable the last three and a half starts. Um, so with him, with Sandy, who I still have unconditional faith in, despite the performance and all the ups and downs of his season, um, and Braxton Garrett. Braxton Garrett has been the biggest unsung hero on this roster, where he wasn't even in the opening day rotation. They were supposed to have Johnny Cueto as the veteran innings eater, and he has oh, eaten right. one inning before he got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so Braxton Garrett stepped into that rotation spot. He had one notoriously bad outing against the Braves, where he allowed 11 runs, all of them earned. And outside of that, he's been... If you take out that start, then he would have one of the lowest qualified ERAs in the National League. He's been so consistently great outside of that, even with underwhelming velocity. He's just an extremely smart pitcher with a deep pitch mix. 
who is getting a surprising amount of swing and miss in his game so far this season. So whenever you have those three, and honestly, you have to t- start with Braxton and Lazardo over Sandy, the fact that they have just those two lefties um, starting in the series, uh, it gives the Marlins a pretty decent chance of winning it just because of how good they are. Yeah, aside from that, the, the bullpen with the Marlins is a little bit vulnerable at the time. That has been such a big strength of this team, uh, especially in you know the most important situations. The overall numbers might not totally catch that, but they've been so clutch. And recently um, lost a key reliever, Andrew Nardi, to an injury. They have Matt Barnes, who's been out for a while, and he was supposed to be ready to return, but just had a setback when he was finishing up his rehab assignment. A.J. Puck has been, for most of this year, a really welcome addition and their primary closer, but he just had one of his worst outings of the year, blowing a save uh, against the Cardinals and getting very lucky that the offense bailed him out in the bottom of that inning. So that that has been a surprising strength of the team for most of the year, and at this moment they're probably as shaky in that department as they've been at any point. You mentioned Sandy Alcantara pitching against the Braves. I wanted to ask, I was really looking forward to that Marlins-Braves series uh, that they played recently just to see the top two teams in the NL East, you know, destroy each other. And really only one team did the destroying, which was kind of, kind of disappointing. What went wrong for the Marlins in that series with the Braves? That one probably starts, you have to start with the starting pitching. Sandy was actually their best starter in that series, both Brian Hoeing and and Yeri Perez were awful, and it's hard to blame them because they're going up against what I think many people would agree is one of the better lineups in recent memory across all of baseball. Immensely deep Braves lineup where it's really hard to... There's absolutely no soft spots, and they have so much slugging when you put pitches in the zone. Um, You just can't poke any holes in what they're doing offensively right now. Um, So, yeah, it's really hard to explain other than running into an, an amazing team. I think even entering that series, most Marlins fans were realistic that there was still a gap between them, that this Marlins season was not about contending for the division. They've never won a division in their franchise history, and that streak is not going to end this year. It was simply about being a measuring stick for this team. And the results, as you mentioned, um, it's emphatic that there is such a big divide still between these two teams that still has not closed yet just because... It mainly starts with the Braves' ability to develop these hitters, to lock up these hitters at ridiculous contracts. Mm. And the Marlins, they're getting, this year in particular, getting great contributions from their outside offensive additions. The one thing that has continued to hold back this franchise and still is a concern moving forward is the inability for the Marlins themselves to develop homegrown hitters and affordable hitters that are true everyday starters. Um, the, The best bats have been ones that they've gone outside the organization organization to acquire via trade free agency and that just that's not going to be sustainable and uh, it's not quite good enough this year and they'll have to turn it around that is really one still the biggest to me the biggest key hovering over the long-term state of the franchise is whether or not they can flip a switch or put together the right player development apparatus that they need in order to churn out hitters right now it still looks pretty bleak down there well, on the other side, what makes the Marlins dangerous moving forward as the postseason picture starts to take shape here? What should other teams be on the lookout for should the Marlins stay in contention? Well, I can talk about Sandy yet again. <laughs> the fact that Sandy cannot be any worse than he's been so far. Um, obviously, coming off the year that he had, and even if you don't expect him to flip the switch and be 2022 
Sandy moving forward. You just look at his his career numbers overall, his ability to eat as many innings as he does, and that's the one thing he's still done this year. Um, him and that top of the rotation between him and Lazardo and Braxton Garrett is, if you expect, and it's a big if, if you can count on Sandy getting back to normal the rest of the way, then that's an incredible starting point for your rotation. It's one that pitches efficiently as well to keep the bullpen rested. And when that bullpen is healthy, it's it's a really great bullpen, especially in terms of the guys they bring out from the left side um, that can shut people down in those later innings and preserve close leads. Uh, the contact hitting that this team does is very legit, starting with a rise, including a lot of other guys in this team as well, from Yuli Gurriel, who's been a really surprising bright spot, Joey Wendell. Um, that's kind of the, the identity of this team offensively is putting the ball in play. And I think they'll continue to do that and continue to be a team that is among the league leaders in batting average as well. Even though they have some key injuries right now, it seems that all those guys, almost all those guys are going to come back at some point. With Jazz, he's out with an oblique issue, but a matter of weeks and just resting that as much as you need before he's in the middle of this team again. And so what they've done without him has been such a pleasant surprise, but he'll be back. And their rotation depth eventually is coming back with Trevor Rogers, with Edward Cabrera, Edward Cabrera being a little bit closer to returning than Rogers is. This is really the moment where they're the most vulnerable, in my opinion, um, now and for really the month of July, because this is the moment where their rotation depth and their bullpen depth are both being tested where I, as good as Arise has been, can you count on him continue to hit at this level? I keep waiting for them to, there to be a little bit of regression from him. I still think that's coming at some point. Um, and this team, I think, can ill afford that regression to happen now. They'd rather happen in late September once they've already had a playoff spot mostly clinched up. Um, right now, they're really vulnerable. But I would say that as this year goes on, um, as we get to the later portion, and they get some guys back that it's just going to be a really well-rounded roster again. And this coaching staff isn't going anywhere, even with a rookie manager and skip Schumacher. Um, they are so good at the little things on the margins from preparing players to, I don't know if you've noticed this, that they are, they have the highest success rate at challenges, managerial challenges <laughs> at any close plays. They've been almost perfect this year. I think hovering around 90% success rate is such a good, they're so well organized in that respect as well to make sure that they challenge the plays they know they can get right and saving the ones for when they absolutely need them. That's just a little statistical edge that they get. Um, so yeah, the coaching staff itself of uh, being one guys that have come from outside of Miami, it's a mostly new coaching staff guys that have been in playoff contending situations before. I think as a whole, both the, the roster and the coaching staff, it has guys who have, postseason experience and it's a it's a more experienced team than i think people realize from the outside which means they won't be um they'll know what to do as this season goes on and um yeah for the ones that are new to this type of scenario um i think they just have a really good support system to figure it out that was honestly one of the uh benefits of making the postseason last year for the phillies uh obviously it wasn't just shaking off the drought that the phillies had had and it wasn't just, you know, yeah, they lost the World Series, but get it going on a deep postseason run like that and giving all like the, the couple young players they have playoff experience uh, was important, you know, to, to get back, to know what it's like to be there, to know what it's like to be in a playoff race. That does have a lot of value. And to be able to have guys on their coaching staff, uh, the Marlins, 
for their young players to you know, consult with or listen to when they're entering these like much more intense stages it does have a lot of value. Uh, so yeah, that is, I think that's, that's something that's going to be really important for this team moving forward. The last thing I wanted to mention was uh, you mentioned jazz Chisholm. He's one of my favorite players to watch. And this isn't really a question, just more of a commentary. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the MLB The Show commercials, and he is, of course, the cover star of MLB The Show this year. And I've started to realize it's such a slap in the face to him that the commercial is all about Derek Jeter. And that it's Jeter specifically, like, it's, oh, it's Derek Jeter. Again, we've been looking at Derek Jeter when it comes to, like, baseball stuff for the last De- like two decades of our lives and here he is again and then like the commercial's all about him and it cuts to the game and it's jazz chisholm on the cover and you're like why am i not watching a commercial starring jazz chisholm why am i watching Derek jeter again and the fact that it's the marlins and Derek jeter and their history together is even more of just like ah, oh, god enough with jeter let's just put the spotlight on jazz chisholm for for one 30 second commercial could we at least do that please <laughs> Yeah, and going back to that decision to put him on the cover, that was somewhat divisive, um, I think, across everybody, even though it was great to have a Marlins player recognized on that cover. You never thought you'd see the day that that happened. He was, some would say, less qualified than the typical cover athlete because of his lack of durability and even some of the inconsistencies with his approach. And so obviously this year has gone probably poorly than the the game designers would have liked in terms of him trying to justify that honor that he got there. Also, it is an interesting connection in that, of course, Jeter was with the Marlins when they acquired Jazz, and depending on who you believe, like Jeter was one of the driving forces in, for the Marlins to make that trade after seeing him in the Arizona Fall League back in way back in 2018 for them to make that the impetus to make that move the following summer to get him I'd be curious to see exactly how uh, that production of that commercial and what the relationship is between those two. Because I know when they were in the organization, like Jazz would speak highly of how close they were and how like Jeter would make himself just so available to him and that they were forming a close friendship. I don't know if that's still the case anymore. And uh, maybe from his perspective, knowing Jazz as well as I think I do, he's probably feeling the exact same way as you do about it, that he finally (laughs) made it here and yet he's still getting overshadowed by somebody else, even though he's the one on the cover of the video game. He is a really unique personality and overall uh, one that the Marlins are grateful to have because he just has that magnetic ability to uh, on the field and off the field to capture people's attention. And they, yeah, they're going to need him back on the field before the end of the year. That's right. Yes, I am very often called the Jazz Chisholm of whatever group I'm in. So that makes sense. You see a lot of overlap there in our uh, our feelings about this. Uh, Eli Sussman, thank you so much for joining us here on Hidden Season. Uh, Eli is, as I said, the founder of Fish on First and the social media manager for Pitcher List. You can follow him on Twitter for as long as that pl- platform exists at Real Eli R E A L E L Y. Eli, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Justin. This is great. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Hitting Season. Thanks to my guests, Tim Jackson of Baseball Prospectus and Eli Sussman of Fish on First. As always, head over to billypen.com slash Season to find our latest episodes as the Phillies take on the Marlins in a big series this weekend. From WHYY and Billy Penn, I'm Justin Clue, and this has been Hitting Season.